Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah and welcome to our 10th session of Islamic Book Reviews. Islamic Book Reviews is basically me interviewing Omar and Shasi. I'm Usama Al-Azami at the University of Oxford. Omar and Shasi is at the uh, University of Edinburgh and one of my good friends who reads far more than most of the people I know and so I, this is my opportunity to ask him about what he's been reading lately. And this week Omar, you are talking about uh, Selene Ibrahim's book, and I'd lo I'd love to let you sort of introduce the book. Selene Ibrahim's um, fascinating, very recent book, uh, Women and Gender in the Quran, and um, basically uh, it's it, uh, the format that we follow as usual is Omar will introduce the book for five to ten minutes, and then we'll launch into a discussion. This is going to be a very interesting one because it's the first book we've properly done on the question of gender, actually. Um, of course, <laughs> we are both men, so you know there's going to be a bit of a. Uh, it's a, not ironic our... at all. Two men discussing a book by a woman <laughs> about a woman and gender in the Quran. Yes, anyway, this is a victim of victim of this uh, series. But uh, inshallah, I mean, we both look forward to sort of uh, um, engaging uh, a lot more female scholars, and that's something that we're trying to do. Um, the format of this series is obviously focused on, uh, you know, it's the two of us having a conversation. Um, and uh, after that, we will move on to a discussion, uh, hopefully a fairly wide-ranging discussion on the book. And then we'd love to open up to um, people sort of putting in their comments and feedback uh, and their questions. You can put your questions in the chat in Facebook and uh, on YouTube and we will answer them in hopefully the last 15 minutes or so of this. Um, so without further ado, please, I'd love to ask Ahmad to go. So this is um, a fascinating and very important book. Of course, there's been a lot of scholarship on the Quran uh, from a gendered perspective, beginning really in the early 90s, uh, but especially from the early 2000s onwards, uh, not just the Quran, but other themes, of course, uh, especially work done by Muslim feminist scholars, and one can think of many great names, including Kisa Ali, Amina Wadud, and so on. Uh, so this work, uh, its its relationship with that trend, I think, is something that we can discuss further. Uh, but what does Selene Ibrahim achieve in this book? What is remarkable or distinctive about the book? I would begin by saying its comprehensiveness and scope. We've seen uh, previous treatments of how women uh, feature in the Quran, and we've seen discussions of gender in the Quran. Sometimes they focus on specific sets of verses, the interpretive heritage, and also how they're discussed in the modern period. So most notably, uh, books like Karen Bauer's Gender Hierarchy in the Quran, which focuses on uh, three particular sets of uh, or three themes, and then the tafsir literature, and then their discussion and, and, and so on, divergent opinions in the modern period. Uh, so that's one example. It's a fantastic book, uh, Gender Hierarchy in the Quran. Women and Gender in the Quran is distinctive because it aims at, first of all, delineating a corpus of verses that deal or refer directly or indirectly uh, to uh, women and girls, females, we could say. That is uh, approximately 300 verses in the Quran, uh, Dr. Ibrahim notes, uh, concern these themes. And uh, she slices and dices analytically, uh, especially in five appendices at the end of the book that explore, uh, for instance, uh, female voices in the Quran, to which she dedicates a chapter as well. So very kind of helpful referencing tool in the back, in the appendices. But uh, in, in the book itself, you have an introduction and four body chapters, if you like. 
Um, and each of the chapters has a different theme, slightly different analytic focus and, and uh, methodology in terms of how it approaches a particular corpus of Quranic verses. The first chapter is on uh, uh, female sex and sexuality, which is, of course, a very, very important theme in the uh, sexuality generally in the Quran. And the second chapter is on uh, female kin, uh, procreation, and these kinds of themes, kinship, family relations. Uh, the third chapter concerns female voices, female interlocutors. So how do women speak in the Quran when they speak? You know, what, is, uh, what features do we notice? How is female speech portrayed? What kind of role do women play in dialogues? That's a very fascinating, oh, they're all fascinating chapters, of course. And finally, a chapter on, a chapter on sorry, female exemplars in the early uh, Islamic polity, if you like which explores women as they feature throughout the kind of chronological development of the Qur'an. And that's something we can talk about all of these in, in more detail. Uh, and I should say the introduction does quite a lot. Um, it lays out some important methodological groundwork. Uh, Dr. Brian talks about her positioning uh, in the academic space. She talks about the, uh, both the promises and the challenges of the academic space. She also situates her work with regard to uh, Islamic feminist scholarship and the trend uh, more recently known as Muslim theology and uh, frames the work somewhat as a kind of uh, woman-centric tafsir. I mean, sometimes uh, Dr. Ibrahim says it is, it is somewhat akin to a work of tafsir, you know, not in the sense that Norman Cult understood this category as a commentary that begins with the first verse and ends with the last verse in sequence and comments on each. No, it's more of a thematic approach. Uh, the coherence of the Quran and how female characters feature therein is also an important uh, concern of the work. Uh, so there's quite a lot. Uh, we can kind of discuss each of the chapters if you like, but it's an important contribution really because of its comprehensiveness and its scope. And really, you know, it. Uh, when uh, it's, it's really a, a an, inter an intellectual milestone, if you like, when mm. somebody outlines, okay, this is, this is where the boundaries are, uh, these are the verses we have to comment on, and so on. So uh, yeah. if you think of the second Islamic century, right, when uh, authors like Muqatil bin Sulaiman writes his, his tafsir, Khamsmi'at uh, Aya, uh, you know, when authors make this claim about this is the legal content of the Quran, it's, they kind of initiate a genre of writing. Right. Uh, so it, I, I do wonder, you know, if we will not see in the future uh, tafsir works in some form or another in, in Arabic or other languages focusing on this on this corpus of verses. Uh, so lots of interesting mm -hmm. thematic analysis. I should say uh, again, very. Um, enriching as far as engagement with secondary scholarship, with modern scholarship goes. Uh, for reasons of accessibility, among other reasons, also because she wants to foreground her interpretation of uh, the Qur'an and these, these verses, the secondary scholarship is really left to the footnote. So very, uh, very detailed uh, and focused engagement with the secondary scholarship, but it's, it's really something you find, uh, find in the footnotes. Um, there's quite a lot of reference to the study Qur'an. The tafsir literature is in the background. So there is obviously awareness of it and the kinds of claims it makes. 
um, about uh, women and how they're portrayed and females are portrayed in the Quran. I should say I can use women and females interchangeably uh, just for, for the sake of the flow of the conversation. But so the tafsir literature is in the background and there is extensive engagement with the secondary literature. I mean, many, many items somewhat embarrassingly for someone who, uh, like myself, is interested in and conducts research on gender. Many items I was unaware of that I'm grateful for Dr. Ibrahim to bring to our attention, but it's really the comprehensiveness scope uh, and the kind of um, this, you know, what, what, what category do you place it in as, as an academic monograph? Uh, and we can talk more about how, how she positions herself as an author. Right, right, right. I mean, it, it sounds like a, a very, uh, the way you've described it in some respects, uh, it, it's pioneering in the sense that it's it's created a field almost, potentially, I mean, depending on how successive scholars follow up on her um, sort of uh, setting out a, this, in a sense, a challenge. How do we understand these 300 verses? And in a sense, she's providing her answer to that question, but it's going to inaugurate a conversation more than anything else. And um, uh, thank you for, Samina, I mean, uh, Awan, sorry, uh, uh, commenting uh, that you're enjoying our conversation on this theme. Um, Good. Yeah. I mean, in terms of something that's come up, and many of the points well mentioned have come up in previous conversations in one form or another between us, yeah. um, Dr. Ibrahim talks about, you know, there's no hiding the fact that four Muslims uh, like her and uh, indeed ourselves. Yes. This this is not uh, an academic exercise in, in the pejorative right. sense. Uh, this is very much a work of what Marxist scholars, I suppose, would call engaged scholarship, but not in the sense of class mm. analysis, of course. Mm. How mm. does one you know how does one position oneself within an academy and an academic tradition mm. that is historically, as he recognizes yeah. explicitly in the introduction, a secular yeah. space yeah. that is, uh, you know. In, in, in some sense, at least, uh, she says, yeah. antithetical to the Quranic ethos, right? The Quran is not a, a secular manifesto. Sure, sure. Um, and there's no avoiding the fact that there is a great deal at stake here in this, in this interpretive activity. You know, right. Muslims right. Uh, typically regard the Quran as, as the revealed word of God. And right. we have an investment in the outcomes of this interpretive activity, something she, she's very frank about to her credit. Right, right, right. Um, and I mean, I, I think that that is itself so, is an interesting I, I think I think this is worth, I mean, this is a very important point that you highlight and, uh, you know, she engages it very thoughtfully in her introduction. Um, and it's worth us sort of pondering a little because our field, you know, in, in recent years, there's been some interesting conversations on this. One thinks um, perhaps a little Bit of, a bit controversially, so to speak, of Aaron Hughes's sort of uh, repeated interventions in this regard, uh, or more entertainingly, Devin Stewart's excellent essay on this um, in that sort of uh, edited a volume. Proposal. <laughs> a modest proposal. I mean, <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, I mean, like, you know, just such a wonderful and humorous writer, um, but very, <laughs> very serious proposals, I think. It, it might be entitled yeah. Modest, but I think it, it really makes some very solid points that are valuable. Yes, um, I, De Devin uh, comes from a particular tradition within Islamic studies, very much philologically oriented. Right. Uh, but and but I think even the... there, if, if you don't mind me saying so, I mean, 
a lot of philologically oriented scholars coming out of you know what was traditionally known as oriental studies and i i work in a department where we we actually discussing the the name of the department in in a sort of meeting today but um you know it's not seen um you know confessional engagement with this as proper scholarship or objective scholarship historically so it's actually quite refreshing to see um, a stalwart of philological Islamic studies like Devin Stewart making this point so sort of, um, you know, compellingly in my view. Um, yeah. Right. But, but I think I think that the challenge in many respects that people like um, ourselves, uh, I mean, for me, it's very much uh, at the forefront of a lot of what I do because I'm uh, sort of uh, trained in the Darul Ulum curriculum of the Indian subcontinent. Um, and uh, so I, I see myself in that tradition as a, you know, alim. Yeah, I give khutbas when, uh, alhamdulillah, you know, this has not been an opportunity that has been afforded to me in the past year. But, um, uh, and, and for someone like Selim Ibrahim, like it's in some ways quite difficult because she wears a headscarf. I mean, it's, it's so sort of like, um, she can't hide her religious identity. I might pass, pass off for like, you know, lots of people have beards, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, who wears a head? Sorry? Yeah, so female scholars face, well, there's a certain amount of male privileges, privilege we must acknowledge, female Absolutely. scholars, particularly visibly Muslim female scholars face, face challenges and have right. their place in the academy questioned much more frequently than their Muslim right, male right. counterparts. That's important to, to foreground. Um, yeah. Now, she does say I, even even um, other other scholars in the academy who may not uh, you know would not be Muslim themselves they often do have some kind of investment in, in these questions of the meaning of the Quran even if, if they're not stated something she she points mm -hmm. out now uh, how, how so this performance of objectivity she speaks of it in these terms now right. this is as I said the work of engaged scholarship. Um, yeah. For those who are interested in engagement of the modern scholarship and very kind of close reading, that's all in the footnotes. I mean, it's there. It's right. kind of reassuringly there in the background. Uh, and I, yeah. I learned a lot from engaging, engaging with these uh, footnotes. Hmm. Um, but yes, so I mean, we, could, we can think about some of the, of the body chapters and things, but there are these important sure. methodological inter interventions in, in the book's introduction in particular. Right, and and I think I mean in in some respects the the space of gender studies um, perhaps is um, you know more open than uh, traditional sort of philological approaches to Islamic studies because um, gender studies is um, its raison d'être is kind of engagement and change and bringing about social change of some kinds um, yes. in ways that of course are I mean so this is another challenge that she um, sort of alludes to and. Uh, in in some ways engages. I didn't get through. Um, I, I've had about. Uh, I was telling Omar earlier that I've had around uh, seven hours of uh, meetings today, but um, uh, so I didn't get through as much of uh, the book as I would have liked. But the idea of being within the secular Western Academy, gender st gender studies is also a secular endeavor uh, in the mainstream of um, sort of uh, gender as a field, and so for her to in a sense take. Um, you know, beleaguered approaches in two separate fields um, and do so with such, um, I think, poise and 
you know, uh, uh, deliberation and, and, and reflectiveness, I think is, um, it's a testament to, and I need to read the full book, but what I've, what I've read so far, I think it's a testament to um, how one can address very challenging issues. But it also is something that reminds us that we are working within cross pressures, um, uh, so to speak. We are working within, a, uh, you know, one of the things that came up for me is why are these questions being asked uh, about the Quran and the gender dynamics? Like in the Islamic tradition, this wasn't necessarily something particularly high on the agenda of the Sears scholars, if at all. But um, for us, it's become a priority in the Western Academy because, you know, uh, there is um, an importance to the gender question. Um, and yes. I, think, I think that's that's something to reflect on as well. What's the source yeah. of that? Um, so, I mean, I would I would agree with you to some extent. Yeah. But these questions are being asked all over the world. We do live in a, yeah. in a globalized world. And the, the, the issue of gender is also uh, a methodological priority in the Muslim majority right. world, for sure. Now, right, right. one reason why is, and she, she engages quite a lot with the work of Ash uh, Geisinger, uh, as Ash points out, uh, she, she points to the figure of Nana Asma'u, the, the daughter of Osman Danfodio. She dies in 1864. Yeah. Right. She is, uh, as far as we can tell, according to Ash, the first kind of female author of a work on the Quran, at least whose, whose work is extant, I believe, right. before the late 19th century. So why, why is gender not a priority? Because Everyone writing on Quranic studies and tafsir was male. This is something right, we had right. in common. And because of right. this uh, common background, the male was just assumed as normative. Right. Now, I mean, if we look look to the world of scholarship, and I, I kind of do teach and, and research on gender and sexuality and these things, um, the academy has only been enriched by the intervention of, uh, I mean, thinking of uh, Kisha Ali, Absolutely. for example, the book Marriage and Slavery is a fantastic Monograph Absolutely. and a, a very successful example of how one can marry rigorous uh, philological scholarship to a kind of feminist hermeneutic uh, and historical agenda. Now, yeah. uh, Dr. Ibrahim's, uh, and I, I call her Dr. Ibrahim because I, I don't know her personally, otherwise I would, right. I'd refer to, or I can say Ibrahim if you prefer, otherwise I'd right. use the first name, but the, it's not clear exactly what her relationship with Muslim feminist scholarship is. She, she prefers the term woman-centric. And mm, we know that true. other scholars, including Amina Wadud in her first book, eschews mm. the term feminist. In her later work, it's a kind of different relationship. But in her first book, at least, uh, right. Wadud eschews this term because it's, it carries all kinds of problematic resonances and it has a history right. and its imbrication with imperialism and so on. Right. And also, um, seemingly instrumentally, uh, Ibrahim points out that um, it, it will also have, uh, you know, it might make the reception of the work a little more complicated. Uh, so who is the target audience of this book is an interesting mm. question, clearly academics, mm. but it seems to be addressed to more general, uh, a believing audience as right. well. Right. Right. Um, so there is that on, on the positioning vis-a-vis -vis Muslim scholarship and uh, Muslim feminist scholarship. And she, she, she or she says this could be read as a work of Muslim theology. Uh, this is right. a term that is more widely coming into use in recent years, especially in the work of 
uh, Jerusalem tea and, and the important right. edited volume in 2013 on, on Muslim theology. Right. Um, so this is this is this is useful and Muslim and, theology is right. uh, final <laughs> final point on this. Uh, yes. She actually produces a definition, uh, which uh, she she comes from another paper she's written. She's quite prolific, um, and it's it's a position that you know actively or solicits female voices and contributions, pushes right. forward a kind of agenda of female centric interpretation and has as its interlocutors right. um, uh, uh, women and, and so on from other kinds of uh, positions, either confessionally or regionally situated. So you can talk about Christian feminist uh, theologians, for instance, or has these kind of interlocutors as, as partners. Right, right. And uh, this is a kind of more, it's increasingly popular term. Right. And uh, I just want to highlight uh, Samina Awan is uh, sort of uh, grateful for your very uh, pertinent references, as she puts it. Sure. And I think I, I mean, but the, the uh, book I, I should uh, I should mention the book really does in the in the footnotes. The whole yes, uh, the, I mean, the, the footnotes really seemed very copious, to be honest. And, um, you know, this is a, an area where I have to sort of defer to the experts, uh, you know, the very many. Uh, great scholars of uh, Islam and gender coming from, uh, I mean, there are so many women who've contributed to this field in particular from uh, sort of uh, Keisha Ali, as you've mentioned, Amina Wood, and various other scholars who've really inaugurated conversations which, um, you know, as as you put it, like, uh, in some sense, for obvious reasons, we're not really engaged in. Um, but I, I, you know, and, and I wasn't sort of trying to suggest that um, in any sense that these people were interlopers, of course not. They are, you know, making very, very sort of important contributions that we all need to grapple with and engage and think about. Um, I guess my only sort of, uh, the, the main point that I was highlighting is that we're also, uh, and, and all of these scholars are very sensitive to this point, that um, the Western Academy, of course, is many, in many respects is complicit in certain types of uh, narrative creation. Um, many of these scholars are very uh, concerned about um, imperialist uh, sort of ambitions drawn from scholarship on uh, Islam and gender. And so, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to highlight um, this dimension of this in a way that, in any way, to suggest that they're not already aware of it. I'm just trying to think about, you know, that that makes it a very complicated and, de and delicate balancing act. Um, yeah. So, yes. I mean. And and they're they're very much aware of this, as you say. So in Aisha Hadayatullah's famous stages of the Quran in the introduction and the conclusion, in Aisha Tawdry's book on domestic violence, again in the introduction, you have very explicit discussions of okay, this is uh, this is a complicated discussion that may be unpleasant yeah. at times. It's one we need to have. Yeah. Uh, you know, personally, a lot of these academic journeys proved quite traumatic. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm not a woman, so I. Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't experience these kinds of discussions necessarily in the same way. Yeah. Uh, but there is a recognition that, you know, scholarship can be pursued and can be appropriated for nefarious ends. Yes. Um, yes. And that is uh, just the reality that, that one has to live with ultimately. Uh, but that's not an excuse not to have scholarly conversations, of course. Yes. That's not an excuse to stop the, yeah. Of course, because the alternative to not having these conversations is 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 even worse. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. 
we should uh, so, to, to turn to the book again. Sure, sure. I, I mean, these are all, of course, drawing on on sort of like her reflections on her own positionality. So uh, I'd, I'd like to sort of ask you which um, sort of particular chapters you wanted to highlight and, and discuss. Um, Gosh, well, a lot can uh, be and, said about and, all of them. If I could also just remind viewers that if you have any particular questions, please feel free to ask. What tends to happen is people tend to sort of get very interested in the engagement in questions right at the end, and we have a cutoff point at, at the hour. So please do put in your questions early. And please, I'm oh, sorry about yes, the Yes, I think one could talk about all of them. I mean, the one on female sex and sexuality is, is important in many respects. I mean, the Quran does discuss the, the, the boundary between licit and licit sex rather a lot. Um, and there is sexuality also in the background and sometimes more explicitly. Um, she does uh, offer her own interpretations. I'm not all of which I, I should say I find compelling. Um, the chapter on women's voices explores the 34 verses where women uh, you know, speak, as it were, and their speeches presented in the Qur'an. Uh, and so interestingly, the most loquacious or talkative uh, woman in the Qur'an, the one who, whose speech is represented most, is uh, the, the, the queen of, of Sira, Bilqis, as she is known in the extra Qur'anic tradition. Um, yes, it is true, uh, Ibrahim acknowledges that women nearly always feature relationally in the Qur'an, so as relatives of certain prominent men. Uh, this is partly a function of the fact that prophets and their families play an oversized role in the Qur'an's uh, narrative of sacred history. Uh, so Bilqis is one of the exceptions. She's not, uh, she's not related to a prominent male figure in the Qur'an. Um, uh, and I mean, in the, again, so, so much that can be said, but in, in the final chapter, for instance, to give you a sense of her methodology, uh, she's very interested in the question of uh, Quranic intertexts and coherence, and also in the, the notion of the, 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 the chronological structure of the Quran, the sequence of the verses. So in the final uh, body chapter of the book, she looks at how women feature and how they are depicted across the uh, kind of chronological uh, sequence of Quranic verses. I mean, as understood by Nuldeka, he has this influential Qudritartite uh, periodization, if you like, uh, uh, early, middle, and late <coughs> Meccan, and then Medina. She recognizes it's somewhat controversial, but still widely accepted, of course, the traditional Muslim uh, chronology of the Quranic verses as well. What does one mm. notice when exploring women's depiction in these uh, in, in these verses so the very first uh reference to a, a named woman in the quran is to the wife of abu lahab hmm. uh, and in the early meccan verses what we find is a reference to various arab uh, female contemporaries of the prophet so beginning with the wife of abu lahab then uh, a reference to the Nafathati Filaqad, the blowers or not, these sort of sorceresses. And then thirdly, to a, a figure who is uh, identified in various ways in the tafsir literature, uh, the one who Nakadat Ghazlaha, uh, and various interpretations of what that means. So in the early Meccan period, we have these various Arab women contemporaries of the Prophet, then um, beginning in the middle, uh, 
Meccan period, we have a kind of biblical and sacred history, the shared uh, sacred history with the other Abrahamic uh, religions. So, you know, beginning with the whole arc of the of the the history, sacred history, if you like, the partner of Adam, Hawa, who is not, of course, named in the Quran, but is named in the extra Quranic tradition, <coughs> and uh, continuing. Uh, into the late Meccan period as well. What you find with the early, with uh, with the Medinan period, you have con continuation of the the biblical uh, female characters, if you like, but no new uh, biblical female characters introduced. But you have increasing reference to uh, women in the society of the Prophet and kind of various, uh, you know, gender gender norms and these kinds of things as well. So this is a sense of how uh, this depiction of female characters unfolds that's really discussed in the fourth chapter um and mm. in the in the first on uh sex and sexuality you have all kinds of things discussed including the the encounter of yusuf with amratul aziz uh, known mm. again in the extra uh, quranic tradition uh, as uh, zuleikha and very interesting i think there i mean i could pause to comment on on each of these you have a so description of uh, sexualities that features in, in eschatology as well, the whole line yeah, in particular, we, which has lots to sell. Naturally, with, with a text like this, and with all the texts that we're looking at, you know, there are so many sort of specific instances. We will probably need to pick just one, at most two, to sort of um, really try and uh, examine in any depth uh, in the limited time that we have. And we're, we're sure. coming uh, to roughly the half an hour point, um, just sure. across it, actually. Uh, much that could be said. I mean, for instance, um, the first, or really the only detailed description of what we, what we would think of as a kind of sexual assault in the Quran, is this encounter between Yusuf and the wife of the of the Aziz, the, the uh, this this important uh, Quranic figure. Now, what does it do? Thinking of the the context in which we live, right? The, the Me Too moment and, and all of this other stuff, the, the notion that one should believe women, uh, so to speak. What does it do, Ibrahim asks, that the only kind of detailed depiction of sexual assault in the Quran is an encounter involving a female aggressor and a male victim? Right. Mm. Uh, so right. One, one point she emphasizes is that if you look at the overall power dynamic, yes, it's true that uh, Zuleikha is a woman, but yeah. Yusuf is socially disadvantaged in a variety of ways. Remember, he's sold as a slave to, to right. Egypt, and yeah. he is in, in a kind of... Uh, he's a subordinate to her, at least. He's a Precisely. Right. Precisely. So this is, mm -hmm. is one way of addressing, addressing that issue. Mm. Uh, and and how is does she... Uh, sorry, I assume you're you're kind of articulating how she... Uh, so this is one mention, and, and how else, like... Does she uh, respond to this? I wonder. Yes, yeah, so I should say um, one of the one of the themes she engages quite a lot with uh, in various chapters, but especially the the one on sexuality, is uh, the idea of beauty in the Quran and how how it features. Is beauty hmm. merely a physical phenomenon? The Quran describes the Prophet's example as Uswa Hassanah, literally a beautiful right. uh, you know, model to follow, if you like. Right. Um, and there are places in the Quran, uh, for instance, where the Prophet is 
commanded not to marry uh, further wives, even if a'jabaka husnuhun. So even if they please you, what what is the nature of this pleasing? Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's one husnuhunna is she translates it as please you uh, because it, it seems quite um, sort of explicit that you know their beauty pleases you, right? Well, but, but I guess yeah, what does that beauty mean? That's what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. So Ibrahim. And this is a tendency we find throughout the book, privileges not the aesthetic meaning of beauty uh, and what she calls its superficial uh, resonance, but character. Right. I mean, th in mm. this respect, I, I don't find it, it persuasive, I, I must say. So the idea that what is the prophet attracted to, mm. she asks, why can we not say it is the, is the character that, that, that attracts him or that is striking? Also in the story of Yusuf, mm. again, same same notion that beauty is a matter of uh, not merely aesthetics, but really character. Hmm. When the uh, hmm. woman uh, cut their hands, when they're sort of slicing through, it, yeah. when Yusuf appears, yeah. uh, and he's the uh, there, there. It seems, I mean, just on on the surface, there it seems a little sort of like a um, bit of a stretch, shall we say? Yes. Because, so yeah. Yes. So. Yeah. Ibrahim emphasizes that well, his his character is angelical. His his kind of you could think of charisma or something like this. Right, right. Again, right. not. I mean, of course, she's aware that in the extra Quranic tradition, this is this is not how the verse is understood. Again, but, I feel that so, is uh, is not quite a compelling so, interpretation. Uh, humor me, uh, Omar, for a bit. I mean, so this is one of the things that I think about sometimes with respect to interpretation of the Quran that um you know okay when the prophet himself is acting as a mufassir that obviously is dispositive but even that is basically uh dispositive of a scenario that has arisen at a particular uh, sort of geographic um temporal contextual situation um but if uh, if you uh, you know if you hold to a theology that recognizes that the quran has been revealed for every time and place and that what matters is the linguistic sort of cogency of an argument. Um, the way I see it, and again, humor me for a bit, mm. if a you know modern person comes up with an interpretation that lem yusbaq, so to speak, um, but it does fall within the uh, semantic range of the qawaid of lughat al-arabiya, um, you know, it, Bearing in mind that God knows that this is within the semantic range of uh, the sort of language at that time, um, even if it's not been explored, is it not conceivable, theologically speaking, that God has you know placed that there um, so that people can uh, sort of utilize a potential interpretation in later centuries? What, what do yeah, you think? Yes, certainly. I mean, so I I would never rule that out as a as a, right. as a possibility, right? In principle. Right. Right, right. In principle, yeah. My, but in these particular I, cases, you may, of course, have very specific arguments. So yeah, so I'd, I'd like to hear them as I, well. One thing that is certainly in, in the background, which I, yeah. I would have hoped, and certainly in a future work, because he talks in the conclusion about, you know, there's so much more work to be done, and I have ideas right. about what, what, more, what more I can right. do to address things. Um, I, I would have liked a more explicit discussion of, you know, hermeneutics of... Uh, what not only what is at stake in, in interpretation, but what, you know, what are the principles, if you like, the usul? Right. How does one read text and what are the assumptions 
uh, we bring to them. Now, throughout the book, she refers to, in certain instances, and androcentric bias, for instance. Hmm. So she critiques the historical and traditional reading of, of the Hura line as hmm. heavenly consorts, uh, virginal right. heavenly consorts, and says this is reading these verses through the lens of male desire. So clearly, she has a notion of um, uh, what's her know, what's her hermeneutic when it comes to hadith. Well, this is a work focusing on the Quran. So, like yeah. the tafsir literature, it's it's in the background. She says in the conclusion, if she would like to, or one thing that must be done more is addressing yeah. the depiction of of women in the hadith. So, and in the, which is in, a vast, in which is a vast task as well, absolutely. because it's, I mean, far, far more voluminous absolutely. than the writing text. Yeah, of course, um, not something that has been attempted that much. I mean, you do get yeah. reformist kind of attempts in the mid twentieth century uh, in, in the mm. Arab world, for instance, on this. Mm -hmm. But it, it's it's a vast task. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, but and so, you know, clearly there is a sense in which the tafsir tradition, because it is basically an exclusively male enterprise historically, yeah. has uh, read things in a certain way. Um, but for instance, in, there's been a fierce debate in Muslim feminist scholarship about, well, do texts uh, in the Quran in particular have an inherent meaning in the first place? Is meaning, as Asar Chaudhry says in, in her book on domestic violence, uh, solely, it seems, a function of interpretive communities and what they claim about texts. Or, uh, I mean, to, to, to go to Karen Bauer, not of course a Muslim feminist scholar, but uh, an important voice, uh, does she, and as also Ben Amsadugi say, the texts mean things, texts have an inherent meaning which we can try to recover through right. various historical techniques. So, you know, without right. taking a position explicitly on these issues, yeah. I mean, implicitly, the, the, the sense is that texts have, have a meaning, right? Otherwise, why are we engaging in this uh, in this exercise in the first place? But, you know, some more explicit discussion of this, I think, would have... So, would so have I, I, I'd say a couple of things, and, and I say this as someone who's an interloper into this discussion, because you're obviously, you know, this is one of the areas in which you write as well. So, um, though I, I, I look forward to your publications in this regard. Um, but, uh, you know... In a sense, I think your concern about human hermeneutics is a reflection of the current debates in scholarship and so on. Uh, but if you think about the early Islamic uh, tradition and how they engaged with these texts, you know, hermeneutics was an afterthought. And, you know, in some cases, you know, quite explicitly. So the, the tariqat al-fuqaha, when it comes yeah. to al fiqh it's like, you know, I do mean, the fiqh and then generate the hermeneutics. It's, 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 a bit it's, like it's presupposed. Yeah, so it's a bit like, I, I don't want to say she's not methodologically sophisticated. No, actually, sure, that's, sure. that's not true sure. at all. Really. Uh, but, you know, it's a bit like the relationship between language and grammar. So yeah. grammar as a yeah. discourse, you know, dates long after after people are using using language to interact with one another. Of but course. for instance, yeah. um, she often make invokes the distinction between uh, grammar and ontology. So mm. God in the Quran is... Uh, most of the time, at least, or much of the time, grammatically male, but ontologically does not uh, have a gender. Right. I should say that uh, Ibrahim says uh, most of the time it seems gender and sex are basically coterminous in the Quran. Yes. Uh, against Asma'a Barlas, uh, who holds a different view on this issue. But uh, for instance, one uh, point we should discuss is when it comes to creation narrative. Uh, 
something that is featured in much scholarship, including the work of Karen Bauer, Devon Stewart, and many, uh, many Muslim feminist exegetes, is uh, the, the use of pronouns when discussing creation. Right. Hmm. The yeah. the point that min nafsin wahid thumma da'ala min Right. So yeah. the the idea that nafs, this self or entity from which creation descends, is grammatically female. Yeah. Uh, now, what does this do for the traditional understanding that uh, the predominant trend, at least among Sunni interpreters, according to Karen Bauer, that Adam, uh, sorry, Eve is created from Adam's rib. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, is it possible to reconcile these these two notions? So, for instance, right. Karen Bau in her book, and she's told me she's thought a lot about this subsequently, and her views have changed somewhat. But in her book, says yeah. that if you read the Quran itself, it does not yeah. preclude the notion of Eve's derivative creation from Adam. Right. Um, also worth addressing is uh, is the the fall narrative, as it were. Now, scholars have also understood this in different ways. Devon Stewart, for instance, argues that when the Quran does not uh, explicitly say that Eve tempted Adam and that Adam uh, ate the fruit and they were both cast out of paradise, hmm. um, Devon says the Quran is making an explicit intervention yeah. against the Judeo-Christian backdrop interpretation of the yeah. story, not just the narrative, but it's the extra-biblical literature. Um, and he asserts that, uh, you know, the claim is that Eve was not was not responsible. Now, that's a claim that does seem to go against much of the extra Quranic literature, mm. to be sure, like the tafsir, which does uh, kind of have many of suggest many of the same meanings as one finds in, in the Jewish and, and Christian literature. Right, right. I mean, uh, of course, a lot of the early tafsir, and again, my question would be, as someone who's not necessarily an expert in these sorts of areas, um, you know, how much of this stuff is prophetic, how much of this stuff is basically Israeliyat floating around that are then sort of being cited yes, by uh, mean, early authorities, right? That's um, a good question, but for instance, yeah. uh, in the Sunni Hadith corpus in, in Zahir Muslim, Yes, and, and that's the other dimension, if I, if I can just point, I mean, like, uh, the earlier question that you asked about, you know, Nafsim Wahida, could that be Eve, etc., if you discount the Hadith and you read purely from the Qur'an, but, you know, that's not a stance that... Um, you know who who takes that stance within the normative tradition um sunnis yes. don't i mean it, you wouldn't be a sunni if you did that um jonathan brown yes. has shown that it's very difficult to do that in the first place um, yes i mean i should say uh, something about how because the relationship between the feminist or the the woman-centric if you like hermeneutic quranic uh, enterprise and the, the islamic tradition or the edifice of this torah this heritage hmm. Um, Ibrahim does take a position on this. So she says, she offers her work as a kind of constructive criticism of many of the blind spots of the mm. androcentric uh, tradition of tafsir. Mm. But she points also to the vitality and continued relevance of the tafsir tradition. So if you like, if it is an apt characterization, it is not uh, to the far left of the spectrum as far as uh, women-centric uh, interpretation goes. So. Right. Uh, it, it is a kind of constructive uh, criticism. And, and now, when, is, when it comes to the yeah. Hora line, that, that's that's another interesting discussion. So, I mean, I'm a little um, sort of, uh, we are coming to, uh, do you want to uh, address that question briefly? We do have sure. a few questions and thank you all for participating. It's it's mainly uh, Samina Awan uh, from Facebook and Dan Islam from YouTube. Yes, we yes. will try to uh, address your questions momentarily. 
But so, um, if you want, you can address briefly um, so briefly, what you're talking so about. Holy. The notion of Quranic sexu uh, sexuality, especially in an eschatological sense, yeah. um, is discussed. I mean, there are five pages in particular. I found this intriguing because he offers an original and interesting take on these verses. Again, thinking of uh, Ibrahim's notion that husn and, and beauty is not primarily aesthetic in the Quran, it is a reference to character and other things. Does, does she fact. assert that? Does she assert that quite strongly? I mean, because well, then it crops imagine... up in several places. Why in Ajab? Or does she does she say it tentatively? She says this could. Yes, be... I mean, you know, yeah. none of these are cut and dried. Yeah, it, it is. It okay. is a you know, there is always, especially when discussing the whole line. For instance, there is language of, well, perhaps it means this, possibly it means this. So it's it's carefully qualified. Yeah, she doesn't claim to have the final word now. Uh, this is perceived as probably so. The idea of you know female sexuality in paradise, you would say, is not explicitly indicated in the Quran, and is seen as it seems to me somewhat problematic. So she refers to the work of Christian Langer, who, if you like, is the sheikh of anyone who works on Islamic eschatology, among among other fields. Okay. Um, and uh, Langer does concede that the Quran does, I think the, the phrase he uses is, is delicately intimate that Congress happens in, in paradise. Hmm. Ibrahim is not really sure about this, but one thing she does, I think, clearly do is push back against, uh, for example, the interpretation of the Horolayan as heavenly, heavenly virgins. Um, so she looks at um, the notion of virginity as a kind of symbolic state symbolizing newness. Uh, so yeah. for her, the the Horalain and the Qasirat uh, al-Tarf are both subsets of the Wildan Mukhalladun. And the Wildan Mukhalladun represent very interesting. New, newly resurrected human beings who are kind of in this new state, in some sense, are no longer fully human being because they are eschatological beings. Um, and, uh, you know, virginity kind of may represent, she, again, she qualifies these observations. So what's the term for virginity that we're using here? Uh, in uh, I mean... Uh, so the Quran talks about lam yatmithum qabla hum lam yatmithum insum wa la jan but abqara yeah. right is, is the Quranic phrase sure, sure. now yeah. what is I so she does show an awareness of the literature I should say Narina Rustumji's book on the Hura line is coming out in September so that should be exciting okay. it's a long, long overdue work in the sense that you know someone has taken a long time to write about this um so it's an original and interesting interpretation. I, I suppose my one issue with it but, is... But I, I just sort of wonder, again, I mean, uh, this is kind of like the the insistent Sunni in me, of course. Uh, like, how do you deal with hadiths? I mean, they're just... Yes, I mean, so... You, you have to discard um, a, a lot of hadiths on these sorts of matters. Um, yeah, so that, the tafsir and hadith literature are in the background, and she said it's something she will treat in a future work. Right. right. But what about if we take the Quran itself? Yes. Right? I mean, um, is it a plausible interpretation? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. she says that the one kind of physical description uh, of of these uh, have our paradisal beings is Yeah. Kawab, 
meaning I often she says translated as sort of buxom if you like. Hmm. But kawaib uh, is is a word like hawaib that means you know people at a particular stage of their development. So when the breasts begin to grow, so it's more than it is a reference to a description actually of of, of their physical appearance. Um, that's you know well, well established point. Now, right. the tricky thing for me really, um, and this applies to Ibrahim's uh, other interesting insights about. The, the possible meaning of beauty in, in various Quranic contexts, whether it's mm. the beauty of Joseph or anyone else, um, the prophet's mm. desire for women and so on, when Ajavaka was known, is um, this problem that, I mean, it's, it's, it's basically a critique that Christians make already in the first century of the Hijrah, and we have examples mm. of this and even, even later, um, mm. that the, the Islamic paradise is a sort of carnal one, Right. Um, now, how do Muslims respond in various historical contexts to this criticism? Of course, in the modern context, there is this power dynamic that you could say skews, skews the answer somewhat. Right. And Christian Langer in the book she cites gives a very, and I should end with this because I find it very amusing, uh, references Al-Mta'u al-Mu'anasa of uh, Tawheedi. Right. And uh, one, one anonymous, I think it's an anonymous figure, perhaps I'm forgetting the name, a Christian theologian says, uh, your, you know, our paradise has no food and no drink and no se sexuality. And the Muslim theologian responds to him by saying, what a dull affair or what a sad affair. <laughs> so in a context where this power relationship and dynamic and this kind of self-consciousness right. and if you like double consciousness of, of Muslims right. is absent, and what might a response yeah. to this criticism look like? So and Tahidi an is re relaying something from an earlier period, I assume, from, from the earliest periods, but... Uh, I mean, I haven't seen it in the original text, but it's cited also in uh, Van Esse's Theologie on Gesellschaft. Okay, well, but uh, in any case, the, the critique um, on the part of Christians is very early about this. And Oh, yeah, absolutely. First yeah. Islamic century. So yeah. we have examples and, of that. Yeah. Now, um, you find books, I mean, Lang also mentions in Ibn Nadim's Fihrist, for instance, hmm. books written against the idea that there is no food in paradise. So the Quran is right. very explicit about food. In my opinion, right. it is delicate in its reference to, to Congress as, uh, as Lang acknowledges. Right. Right. So this is one respect, and I, I find it's an interesting interpretation offered by Ibrahim. Do I find yes, I mean, I, and, and I think um, in a sense, this goes back to my earlier point that, you know, what, what's to say that modern people can't uh, try and address course, the semantic yeah. range of the text? And, and in that respect, you know, um, this is, uh, as one scholar put it, uh, it's people can still engage it in that way. Of course. Uh, they've done so the work is an instructive yeah. example of how a work that kind of draws on and riffs off tradition in various yeah. ways can also and also diverges it from it in other ways yeah. can make original and, and valuable right valuable right. points and now naturally people will disagree you know not everything sure. says i will necessarily agree with and, and sure. vice versa and and I think it's I mean like um, it's nice to I was just rereading um, uh, Richard Bulliet's uh, Islam View from the Edge and he says in the introduction if I recall correctly now that you know this is one of the most vibrant ages for Islamic intellectual sort of yes. um, uh, production and uh, and so you know I th I think this is an age also that merits that although um, the difference between today and in the past when this has happened is. Uh, the relatively subaltern status uh, in the political and the global sort of political yes. realm. Yes, and Fazal Rahman yeah. makes, I mean, in some sense, the modern period is almost like the formative, 
yes. in terms of the challenges and opportunities yes. available to Muslims. Yes. The one distinction or one of the main distinctions as Fazl Rahman points out somewhere in his corpus is, right. you know, formative era Muslims did not have this long history behind them that they had to deal with moderns, moderns do. Right. Right. Uh, which is which is a point worth thinking about. But I think we should turn to some of the um, We should, we should. Thank you. Jazakallah khair and Alma, it's really sort of been very engaging. And I, I, I'm tempted, like people have asked questions going back a while. So we're going to definitely address the questions that have been written right now. Um, uh, sure. And, uh, you know, we'll, even if that goes a little over time, because we need to do justice to what you've I'll, asked. I'll try to be brief. I should mention, no for instance, so there is engagement with the extra Quranic literature. Wait, sorry, for instance, who, which, what are you, what are you, which question are you addressing? And you should put it on the screen, um, and we should read it out for the okay, sort of replay. Good, good point. So, da, 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 yeah. So uh, let me let me put this on the this screen. One, this right. is a good so, one. So, well, so Jan Islam asks: uh, Some feminist readings of the Quran suggest that feminist and non-feminist are potential. Uh, i.e. potentially contradictory readings are all genuine or acceptable from a religious perspective. How does the book uh, address this issue? Um, perhaps this issue represents a liberal conservative divide? Hmm. Interesting question. Um, Is this the Musawwiba Mukhattia question? Among the, the feminist authors. I'm, I didn't see much engagement with this kind of meta-level discourse, not to say it's not there in mm. the background, and certainly yeah. in, in Ibrahim's other work. Uh, I didn't see much engagement with this question, so I'm not, I'm not quite sure how Ibrahim would answer it. I think the assumption is that the Quran does have a meaning, and that meaning is not merely the, the function of what interpretive communities say about the Quran. And we can recover this meaning through, you know, philology and interpretation of language. Um, but she does push back against uh, what what is uh, termed androcentric bias. You know, the the horror line have been read, as she say, through the lens of male desire. So that would suggest to me that some readings are certainly less plausible than others, and some readings may even have uh, a kind of um, deleterious consequence. So uh, one of the the main aims of the book is not only to explore you know, female agency and, and voices in the Qur'an, it is also clearly pushing back against uh, the domination and, uh, and, 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 and the, the exclusion of women from the enterprise of, of Qur'anic interpretation. The Qur'an is a dialogic text, so you could say it lends itself to some extent to this kind of effort. And she points out that uh, nearly 12 verses are tied to a sebab nuzul that has something to do with a woman's comment or intervention or something like this. So the Quran itself, in, in the um, Muslim understanding, in one version at least, is responsive to one's concerns in a very literal sense. If, if I may, I mean, add to just um, more explicitly addressing the question of, uh, you know, people who are arguing that all of these readings, um, what um, Jan Islam is described as feminist and non-feminist, that all of these can be acceptable. The the challenge that, um, and, and I'm sure the Musawwir Muhattia debate has been sort of like really um, done to death in the in the pre-modern literature. Um, for those who are unfamiliar, the idea of whether, you know, all ijtihads are correct versus whether actually only one ijtihad is correct and others are sort of 
mistaken but not taken to task in this world in that sense because the yes. hadith which says you know every age so you have is whether rewarded, or not there is speak. one ontological truth if you like well, it, right so that's a, a more articulate way of putting it and and the the problem i find um you know one of the things that the usulis discuss of course is that there are different types of issues so in certain issues yes there can be multiple like you can think of the qira'at and and many of those readings are correct so to speak but I think um, on certain issues, you come across this issue of contradiction, where it's outright contradiction. And I kind of incline to someone like Alistair McIntyre's position. He says that once you accept, and this is a critique of relativism, um, which has a certain kind of popularity to it in the humanities, actually, uh, in not as sort of crass relativism, but the, but the problem with rejecting non-contradiction as a principle is that you can't really sort of have coherent discussion after that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's my fundamental problem with this. And I'd like I, to read I would maybe. say yeah. a point that follows on and thinking of this feminist uh, tafsir enterprise, if you like, the, the view that texts do not have some kind of inherent meaning. I, we, you can, everyone would recognize the phenomenon of ambiguity. Uh, but the notion that meaning is solely a function of what interpretive communities say about the text, for me, is, and I've spoken to Karen Barr about this, she discusses it a bit in her book, is it makes, it means that all scholarship is, is recept, reception history, uh, but right. it, it really makes uh, scholarship in a, in a serious sense impossible. Why? Right. So you know, right. if you write an intervention uh, saying that patriarchal tafsir is bad, if language mm -hmm. has no inherent meaning, then who's to say you're not making an argument in favor of patriarchal tafsir. So it's subject to this kind of self, it's self-defeating, if you like, it's subject to this vicious um, uh, cycle criticism, like, like uh, uh, Peronian skepticism. Yeah. But uh, yeah. to, 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 to go back to the book, since I am anxious yeah. to say a bit more about it, uh, we've spoken it, uh, mostly about the chapters on, on sexuality, on women's voices, and, and uh, the final chapter as well. Um, overall, there are nearly, as we said, oh, approximately 300 verses that reference uh, females in one form or another. And the depiction of female characters is generally positive. So most of the female figures depicted in the Quran are kind of exemplary, if you like, or at least not, not negative. And uh, if you think of the relationship between, say, sisters or between sisters and mothers in the Quran, you do not have, unlike, uh, unlike the case with males, you do not have uh, you know, uh, evil daughters as you do evil sons, uh, for instance, um, uh, and, and various other things. So you do have three, I think, three, three women in the Quran are kind of condemned specifically. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, a parallel in, in, in the field of hadith studies, it's often said that women were never accused of forgery or fabrication. Yes, Lisan al-Mizan, this is Ibn Hajj al-Asqalani says in Lisan al-Mizan in the introduction. Yeah. Yes, um, so comparatively speaking, one could say the Qur'an depicts women in a more favorable light than it does men. Yes, they feature less heavily, you could say, but they're not mere, mere um, uh, auxiliaries, right? Their voices matter. Uh, female exemplars, are, you know, sacred history is littered with these female characters and they play an important and central role in the Quranic discourse, and especially, um, uh, Ibrahim says that she's concerned with how uh, female figures are used by the Quran to fulfill its didactic.
purposes, and certainly they are sometimes negatively, but most of the time they're the sort of positive example exemplars. So finally, I should say, um, other than the Prophet ﷺ, of course, is the you could, in some sense the central address of the Quran and interlocutor of the Quran. Um, the figure who whom uh, who interacts most with uh, divine speech and revelation and uh, angelic or if you like it divine agents is in fact Maryam. Maryam alayhi salam. And so, she's named more than the prophet in the Quran. Yes, yes. Uh, she does also talk about the naming of particular figures. So the only Sahabi to be named in the Quran is Zaid, of course. So we shouldn't be surprised by because the nature of the Quran is a text that's very elliptical and so on and avoids uh, proper nouns of, of the Prophet's contemporaries. Right. So the, the, the failure to mention Khadija and so on is in no sense remarkable when we bear this context in mind. And the scholars also point out that the the reference to the Prophet as Nabi or Rasul is part of the tashrif of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, because in a sense, uh, but um, uh, I was going to uh, sort of ask you to introduce next week's book, but we should really uh, first conclude by saying that, uh, you know, this has really been, I think, uh, an illuminating discussion on a very important text, um, a challenging text in many ways, but yes. that, that sort of challenges us to really engage it in a very positive way, um, I think. Um, and I, I really appreciate the fact that she's writing in this sort of confessional voice from within the academy. Uh, and that's a challenge for many of us. Yes. Uh, this is something that I would, you know, really look forward to yes, doing. Yes, so I, I mean, yeah. the, the author deserves great credit for this. I mean, it is a serious academic work. Read the footnotes and you'll see that immediately. Right. But it, right. it is also, you know, if not a devotional voice, right. um, it is it is written with a, you know, Muslim and non-Muslim audience in mind, but there is a great deal at stake, especially for women in, in the interpretation of the Quran. And there's really no escaping that fact. And she urges us to recognize this. And I think I think we all we all should and hopefully we all would. Uh, so I, I really commend the author for this book. It is engaging. It is uh, really distinctive for its comprehensiveness and scope. I hope it will inaugurate a new tradition of uh, engaging um, with the Quran and its uh, material on uh, on on females in, in various respects, uh, and I look forward to the more work because he promises additional stuff in the conclusion, including um, a more kind of devotionally oriented uh, ref reflection on the pastoral uh, lessons one can derive from these exemplary stories of, of female figures in the Quran. Inshallah. And uh, with that, I'd like to ask you, Amar, to briefly introduce next week's book, inshallah, sure. and then, uh, yeah. So one of many things, of course, we did not have the time to discuss was uh, Bilqis, uh, the Queen of Siba. Uh, there's much to be said about that. The Quran kind of does not criticize a rule per se. Uh, but anyway, uh, because that theme uh, appears in this book, I thought next week's book should also uh, connect to it. Uh, next week, we will be discussing uh, Shahla Ha'ari's The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, Succession, Authority, Gender. Um, and this looks at certain key female figures, both in, in sacred history and uh, in early Islamic history and later periods in, into the 20th and early 21st centuries. Um, so I look forward to, to joining you then. And of course, she's riffing off the title 
Fatima Murni, the late uh, Fatima Murnisi's book, uh, God Have Mercy on Her, The Forgotten Queens of Islam. So it's it's kind of in, in this uh, conversational relationship with this early kind of Muslim feminist work, reflecting on the neglect or suppression even of this memory of women as rulers in the Muslim majority world, something on which there's been quite a lot of literature recently, I should say. Jazakumullah khairan, Omar, and Jazakumullah khairan for all the uh, people who put in plenty of comments and uh, questions. And uh, inshallah, we look forward to seeing you in a week's time. Uh, and until then, fi amanillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.